Hi, hey, welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm Kay Albert Little, an evangelical, non-denominational convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is born out of one particular idea. See, as I was looking into the roots of my Christian faith as an evangelical Christian, I bumped up into the Catholic Church. It's all over church history, and as it turns out, what I knew about the Catholic Church, what I thought the Catholic Church was and and stood for and what Catholics believed, ended up being completely backwards. I was, in most cases, dead wrong. But I didn't know that or find that out until I began to read Catholic authors, read from real Catholic sources, from the heart of the Catholic Church. It was then that I began to understand that much of what I knew about Catholics was based on rumors or misunderstandings or misinformation. This podcast seeks to fill in that particular gap. The gap between what you think Catholics believe and what Catholics actually do. I have real Catholic conversations with real Catholic thinkers from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. And this episode is going to be a little bit different. You see, when I began this podcast 38 episodes ago, it's hard to believe, I never intended it to be just me behind a microphone in our small home studio talking about things. It was always intended to be an interview podcast. I'd get Catholic guests and talk about Catholic topics and go from there. But as it turns out, some of those early episodes where it was just me behind a microphone talking ended up being some of our most popular episodes, and they remain so today, almost a year later. So I thought I'd give it a go, another experiment in this podcast, and release an episode like this one, with just me talking behind the microphone about Catholic topics. No expert here this week other than myself, and I'm not quite an expert at anything. But I am a passionate evangelical convert to Catholicism. And I want to unpack with you this week some of the challenges that led me to make that conversion, to make that jump, to experience that ultimate paradigm shift. And truly, it's not that I'm out of guests to have on the show. I have for you seven fantastic episodes already recorded, mastered, and produced, and waiting in the pipeline to be released. Guests like Paul McCusker, the showrunner, the head of the Adventures in Odyssey series, a mainstay staple of evangelical radio drama. McCusker is now a Catholic convert and sits down with me, sat down with me, for an enormous, wide-ranging two-hour interview about his conversion to the Catholic faith. That's coming up. I have also Dr. Elizabeth Klein, from Augustine Institute, talking about how we understand God, the nature of God, the person and divinity of Jesus Christ, and how, as Catholics, our understanding of who God is, who the Church says He is, impacts our entire lives. That, as well, was a fantastic interview. 
I also have Dr. Douglas Beaumont, a popular guest on this show and a good friend as well, returning to talk about infant baptism and to debunk and dispel some of the myths surrounding why Catholics believe in the baptizing of infants and why we do it, and how to explain that to non-Catholic Christians. I'm joined as well next week on the podcast by Dr. Daria Little, a Muslim convert to Catholicism, and Keith Nestor, an evangelical pastor who spent 22 years in church ministry full-time before converting to the Catholic faith. The two of them join me on a special panel episode, a discussion I'm calling A Convert's Guide to Mary. That's next week, and it's a fantastic interview. It's just wonderful. So, I'm not out of guests. I have many more coming up as well, beyond those ones already recorded and produced. So many, I can't even tell you about all of them, but they are fantastic. But I thought for a bit of an experiment this week to try just me behind the microphone for half an hour or so, talking about some of the tough questions to ask Bible-only Christians. These are some of the tough questions that I had to ask myself. Because those early episodes are so popular, I thought maybe you might enjoy this discussion, well, this conversation, this talk, these thoughts of mine. Just me. I'm curious to know what you think as well. Please send me an email to cordialcatholic at gmail.com or on Twitter at cordialcatholic or on Facebook at the cordialcatholic. Or leave a comment as well on the blog at thecordialcatholic.com and let me know what you think about this format of episode. I didn't think anyone would enjoy it, but those early episodes are still among the most popular. So maybe there is something good going on here. And hey, it's been almost a year of this podcast and I really can't believe it. Almost 52 episodes under my belt, and I have a hard time even believing that that is real. It's incredible. I never expected this, and I have my patrons at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic to thank, and my sponsor, Select International Tour, at selectinternationaltours.com slash cordial. And of course, you guys, my listeners, who dedicate time every week to listen to this podcast. Thank you so much, guys. Let me know what you think about this particular episode, because I am curious how you like this different format. And hey, one more thing. Throughout this episode, I keep referring to the book of Esther as the book of Ruth. I don't know, guys. I guess Old Testament books with female names just get me. But for as long as I can remember, I've always mixed up the names of these two books. And of course, with no guests on the show to correct me, I just go on making the same mistake over and over again. But of course, it's the Old Testament book of Esther, not Ruth, that features additional content in the Septuagint version, not found in the Hebrew version. In fact, interestingly enough, the Septuagint version of Esther is the version that contains references, prayers to God. The Hebrew version of Esther does not contain these elements of prayer, these references to God. They're missing in the Hebrew version. So, just a disclaimer there for you. When I say Ruth, I mean Esther. Esther is the book of the Old Testament that's different in the Septuagint version from the Hebrew version. (laughs) 
Thanks for your understanding. And I guess it goes to show that I maybe should have a guest on the show to help me along when I make those mistakes. Mea culpa. And so without any further ado, here's my thoughts, my talk, a conversation with myself about some of the tough questions to ask Bible-only Christians. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, friends, here we go. Bit of a different episode this week, and do let me know what you think of this format. Those of you who have read my blog or heard the first episode of this podcast know a bit about my own journey into the Catholic faith. And the catalyst for that journey really began when a Protestant pastor I was working with, I was working for at a small community church, asked me the question, what's more important? the Bible, or tradition. Now, I hadn't considered that question before. I read my Bible. I loved my Bible. I had many different kinds of Bibles. And tradition was always one of those kind of watchwords in the evangelical circles that I traveled in. It was a thing of the Pharisees, not something, surely, that Christians could cling to or believe in or appreciate. It was a Catholic thing. One of those man-made ritualistic things that was tacked on to holy and simple Christian belief that we find in the Bible. But as I began to dig into the roots of the Christian faith, as a result of that pivotal question, I realized that tradition had to play an important role in shaping the Bible itself. After all, for the first three or four hundred years, the church didn't have a set fixed canon of books in the Bible. There were popular books passed around, letters from the apostles and some of their successors and the four gospels. These were read in churches all over the ancient world. But there also were other letters that were read in those churches, other versions of different gospels and biblical kind of stories and prophecies and those kinds of things that were also passed around. Those were read with a kind of authority in churches as well. And so somebody, some kind of arbiter, some kind of body, had to decide what ultimately belonged in the fixed, closed canon of the Bible. The table of contents of the Bible, in other words, had to be set, had to be organized, determined in some way. As a non-Catholic Christian, as an evangelical, I'd taken church history courses. I knew a bit about the ancient church and the medieval church and the structure and the, the way the Bible was put together, but it never occurred to me to think about who had the authority to decide what books belonged in the Bible. It wasn't God that somehow gave this table of contents to Christians. The Bible did not fall from the sky in one singular piece. These books had to be traced back to their origins. They had to have the look and the feel of the apostolic church, the early apostles. They had to be believed and received by those ancient churches with some authority. And then it had to be decided by a group of somebody, some kind of organization or or people or body, which books ultimately belonged in that canon. Well, as it turns out, it was 
a very Catholic church that made those decisions. It was groups of believers made up of people called bishops who had a hierarchical structure to their church. These churches traced their origins back to the apostles. They had a pope who traced his succession back to Peter, who they saw as the first pope appointed by Jesus. So the people making these decisions, ultimately affirming what belonged in the Bible, they used various ways, but ultimately these were Catholic bishops made up of what was called then the Catholic Church. They were called Catholics, who ultimately affirmed the, bo- the books that belonged in the Bible. Right away, as I discovered this, I was struck by the fact that, yes, tradition had to play a role in the formation of Scripture. So, in that sense, tradition informs Scripture. It is a thing that is working with, over, in a sense, to collect that Scripture together. This, of course, is what the Catholic Church has always taught, that we are not Bible-only Christians because tradition has to play some kind of a role. How we live, how we understand the world around us can't all be explained by the Bible. It was never intended to be that way, and I'll mention that a little bit later in this episode. The problem of using the Bible in that way is that there are questions you can't answer. And these are things I bumped up against as I was trying to answer those questions as a Bible-only Christian. I didn't have the tradition of the church. I didn't have the teaching that worked alongside of the Bible to answer some of those questions. I knew from reading my Bible that even Paul himself tells Timothy to cling to these traditions. So I knew there were important traditions that existed in those biblical times alongside of the letters that Paul was writing and the gospels that were collected and written and the structure and the canon of the Bible. There were traditions, but those things seemed to be man-made or got in the way or simply ignored. When Paul writes to Timothy to cling to traditions, I had to kind of ignore that passage as an evangelical Christian. To simply put it to the side. I didn't know what it meant, but it couldn't have been important because I have my Bible and that's all that I need. But when I began to ask tough questions the Bible could not explain outright, well, I ran into some problems. It began when I asked questions about things like marriage, things like gender. These questions seem to be answered quite succinctly in the Bible in the letters of Paul, in the words of Christ, yet evangelical Christians, churches that profess to cling to the Bible as their source of divine revelation, churches that otherwise seem very faithful to the Word of God, were interpreting these things in ways that I could not understand. Yet the church, the traditional teaching of the church, how the church has traditionally understood the words of Christ and those passages, was clear and remained succinct for 2,000 years. When I would look at different passages of the Bible, read the opinions of different evangelical theologians, I was at odds with some of these ideas and opinions and perspectives. They seemed to take the same passages of Scripture, but interpret them in radically different ways. I couldn't make heads or tails of this. Then here was the Catholic Church, which believed that Scripture can't answer these questions by itself, 
but was augmented, was protected, was interpreted through this lens of tradition, this lens that Christ gave to the church when he gave the apostles the power to bind and loose. The church had the authority to interpret these scriptures uh, properly, they would say, with that authority that Christ gave them, and to teach a tradition which was passed down since the beginning of what these teachings of Christ and the apostles meant. It was there then, in the Catholic Church, that I found an answer to a lot of these questions. A lot of these tough Bible verses, these tough Christian social moral teachings, these tough ideas of Christianity, found an answer in the Catholic Church, which had a succinct reply to these questions, where the Bible wasn't exactly always clear. We'll mention that again a little bit later. The idea of the system of having a Bible alone, I think, and I've written before, might be broken. Broken because Christ never intended it to be that way. But I want to back up a little bit first. The first tough question I want to address, because this is a tough question that I had to address as a Bible-only Christian, is the Bible itself. See, as Bible-only Christians, we trust the Bible is the authoritative word of God, the final word on how we should live as Christians and what our Christian churches should be teaching and how to understand the message of Christ. The Bible that most evangelical non-Catholic Christians have is a Bible which has its origin in the Reformation. You see, Before the Reformation, the Bible that was most commonly used in the Christian world had books that are not in the current Protestant Bible. These are called apocryphal books by Protestants or deuterocanonical books. They're books that often non-Catholic Christians would accuse the Catholic Church of adding on to the Bible. But this really couldn't be further from the truth. Truly, in history, the church affirmed these books from the beginning to be part of the Bible. These books are books of the Old Testament. They are actual additional books than what Protestants have. Those books were taken out of the Protestant Bibles. But they're also extra parts of books that Protestants do have. Extra parts of of Ruth or of Daniel, for example, in the Old Testament. Now, what happened with these books uh, is that during the Reformation, when characters like Martin Luther or, or Zwingli or John Calvin were looking at the Catholic Church and objecting to some of the teachings of the Catholic Church, and there was a lot going on back then, and there is no singular explanation for the Reformation, but during this time of reform, of revolt, in a sense, against the Catholic Church, What Martin Luther, amongst others, discovered was that the Old Testament that the Jewish believers in the area of the world that Martin Luther knew weren't using the same version of the Old Testament that the Catholic Church was using. What the Catholic Church was using and affirmed and the canon uh, of the Old Testament which contained these so-called extra books was called the Septuagint. It's a Greek translation of the Old Testament books. Now, 
the Jews that Martin Luther knew in his orbit, in his circle, were using a Hebrew translation of the Old Testament, which didn't contain the same number of books of the Old Testament. And some of those books, as I mentioned, like Ruth or Daniel, had less content in them. So, as part of his revolt against the Catholic Church, and among other reasons as well, Martin Luther moved those books of the Old Testament kind of into an appendix, which he called the Apocryphal. Uh, They were books that were received, he said, by the church with a little less enthusiasm. And he has good warrant for this, in a sense. Even the famous biblical scholar, St. Jerome, who's responsible for creating the enormous Latin translation of the Bible, he's lauded, he's venerated highly by the Catholic Church in that sense. Even St. Jerome objected to some of these so-called deuterocanonical books. But in the end, he affirmed what the Church had always said. He capitulated to the authority of the Catholic Church and included these books in his translation. But Luther would point to people like Jerome and people like the Jews that he knew that didn't include these Bibles in their Old Testament canon as a reason why they should be at the back of the book, in a so-called appendix-type area. Eventually, these books were moved out of the Bible completely a bit later on, but it was Luther who began that shifting of these books, the questioning of their authority and their inclusion in the Christian canon. But they had been there for the history of the Christian biblical canon. They were part of the Bible, affirmed by the church at the very beginning. Other scholars, a bit more skeptical of Luther, or maybe not quite as generous, would say that he moved these books out of the Bible in part because they contradicted some of the beliefs that he had, which were, uh, which were opposed to the Catholic Church. For example, uh, the several Maccabees books in the Old Testament, part of the Septuagint, part of the Old Testament canon the Catholic Church affirmed, the ancient church affirmed, some of these books included the idea of praying to the saints or praying to dead people, dead Jews, dead believers. Martin Luther objected to that idea in large measure, and some scholars argue that this is one of the reasons why he questioned those books as well. What maybe began his questioning or encouraged his questioning was that some of the beliefs that were shown in these books contradicted his own interpretation of what Christians should believe, despite the church affirming these books and despite the church practicing these things since the beginning of the Christian church. At any rate, these books were moved to an appendix and eventually were lobbed off the Protestant Bible, and they are not included anymore in most Protestant biblical canons in most Protestant Bibles. Now, the problem with this, and the tough question that I found myself asking, is if the Bible alone is my resource for understanding my faith, what would I do if I found out that my Bible was not complete? It's a bit of a scary idea. Imagine the source for all your understanding of Christianity, for how you understood your faith in the words of Christ and the history of salvation that God has laid out before us, what if that singular source of your faith was missing important parts? Well, as it turns out, this seems to be the case for the Protestant Bible. You see, the Septuagint text, the the Greek text 
of the Old Testament, the church always affirmed, includes these extra books, includes ideas of Old Testament figures, the Maccabees, praying for deceased believers. This kind of prayers for the saints, this this praying for the saints, among other ideas, demonstrates a very Catholic practice. But Protestant Bibles don't include these parts, and so that practice seems foreign. If those Old Testament books were part of the Protestant canon, they would be opened up potentially to a whole new world of what Catholics call the communion of the saints, the intercession of the saints, the idea that believers who are deceased are still part of the singular church that we are part of, even if they are dead, that Christ has not put up a veil between life and death. On the contrary, he came to remove that veil. So deceased Christians, those who've gone before me, can pray for me from their vantage point in heaven. They can see God in one moment and pray for me in the next. It's an incredible picture, but because these Old Testament books aren't in the Protestant biblical canon, this idea of prayer for the saints, the the prayers of the saints, isn't even on the radar for most Protestant Christians. But these books serve to underpin some of the beliefs of the earliest Christians who practiced this kind of prayer, and the Catholic Church today. So what if these books did belong in the Protestant canon all along? What if they were removed in error by Luther and the Reformers? Well, there's good reason to think that they were. And this is the tough challenge I want to pose, because what if the Bible that non-Catholic Christians use is missing something? What does that mean for your faith if your faith is founded on that Bible? And there's good reason to believe that the Bible that Protestants use is incomplete. Here's one idea. First of all, the early church fathers used the Septuagint text of the Bible. Scholars can look back and trace the fact that the quotes that the early church fathers used. These are the successors of the apostles, the people who wrote immediately after the apostles, who began the early church, people who were taught by the first apostles. They used the Septuagint version of the Bible, of the Old Testament, when they are quoting the Bible. So there we know that these early church fathers were affirming the Septuagint. The Septuagint canon, remember, contains those extra books of the Bible. So, if the early church fathers are quoting from that version of the Bible, rather than the Hebrew canon of the Bible, which wouldn't have contained those texts, well, there's some small affirmation, at least, that the Septuagint version of the Old Testament, with those extra books, was considered canonical to the earliest Christians. Here's the next idea. They were quoting the Septuagint version of the Bible because they had been taught by the apostles to quote the Septuagint version of the Bible. In other words, they were relying on that biblical canon of the Old Testament, which contained these extra books because the apostles, those appointed by Christ, had done the same thing. In fact, we find that 90% or more of the quotations from the Old Testament that we find in the New Testament, in the letters of Paul, 
in the Gospels, in the letters of Peter or, or John, or in Revelation, in these different texts which we say are part of the New Testament canon. We affirm that. We all agree on that. The quotations that these authors draw from the Old Testament are from an overwhelming majority the Septuagint version of the Old Testament, which, remember, contained those extra books. We have the apostles, the writers of the Gospels, putting into Christ's mouth quotations from the Old Testament, which are the Septuagint translation. In other words, Christ himself is seen in the Gospels as quoting from the Septuagint in an overwhelming majority of the time. What does this tell us? That the apostles and seemingly Christ himself is affirming not the smaller Hebrew canon of the Bible, but the larger Septuagint Greek translation of the Old Testament, of those Hebrew scriptures, which contains these extra books and the extra pieces of some of those books, like Ruth or Daniel, for example. It's remarkable that it seems like the early church fathers, the apostles, and Christ himself affirmed the Greek translation of the Old Testament, those extra books, those apocryphal books, as being part of the canon. After all, those authors could have quoted the Hebrew text. Jesus could have quoted the Hebrew text. They do, in some cases, in fact, but in a tiny, tiny minority of the time. The overwhelming majority of the time, they're quoting those Greek translations. So here's the challenge. If my Bible, my Protestant Bible, as an evangelical, is the only source of my faith, is the sole way I understand my faith, if tradition is a thing that I've set to the side, even though tradition seems to have put the Bible together in the first place, but if the Bible is my sole source of information about my Catholic, my Christian faith, I should say, what do I do if that Bible seems to be missing important pieces? It's a bit of a tough and scary question. It's a question for me that led me simply deeper into the Catholic Church. Because the Catholic Church has affirmed that larger canon of the Old Testament, the canon referred to by Jesus, the canon quoted by the apostles and the church fathers, they have cited that canon as the one that Catholics, Christians, should read. But as a Protestant, as an evangelical, non-denominational Christian, my Bible seems to be, or would have seemed to have been, missing important parts. Parts that are in a canon which was quoted by Christ, the apostles, and the early church fathers. Well, one more thing on this idea, because this is a more recent and important discovery. The Dead Sea Scrolls were some texts, some Old Testament and uh, other source texts found more recently in the middle of the 20th century in some caves very well preserved. These Scrolls, these Dead Sea Scrolls, were maintained, were saved by a group of Jews called the Essenes. Now, what's important here is that these scrolls give us parts of the Old Testament that we otherwise wouldn't have had great sources on or 
fill in some information, very important information, as it turns out. Because what more modern scholarship has found is that there are examples in these Dead Sea Scrolls that demonstrate quite clearly that in books like Daniel, books like Ruth, some of these Septuagint translations of Old Testament books, for a long time, scholars would have thought that these Septuagint translations of these books added on things. So not only was the canon used by the early church uh, composed of extra books, but some of these books of the Old Testament that the Protestant church would affirm, like Daniel or Ruth, had extra bits added on in the Greek translation, for example. What the Dead Sea Scrolls reveal to us is actually the contrary. It appears that the most original versions of these Old Testament books had these parts that the Septuagint includes. So, what this means is that the Hebrew translations of the Old Testament books, those used in the Protestant canon, are actually missing elements which were originally present, which the Septuagint seems to have preserved, not added on in the translation from Greek, but preserved more closely to the original way that God wanted these scriptures to be written. It's a remarkable idea. And for me, a remarkable realization that not only is the Protestant Bible perhaps missing some books which are quoted from the canon that Jesus, the apostles, and the early church fathers would have used and understood and affirmed, but some of those books that are in the Protestant evangelical non-denominational Bibles are missing pieces. Missing pieces which history, which scholarship, which research, which evidence now shows us should have been in there in the first place but were removed in a subsequent translation. It's remarkable to think. And one more thing in closing. I mentioned that the Protestant system of Bible alone might be broken. Well, I certainly came to this conclusion as an evangelical, non-denominational Christian. And I came to that conclusion when I realized that there is no plain sense understanding of Scripture. This was something that Luther and the early reformers would have advocated, that I can read my Bible. Since the invention of the printing press, we can print Bibles and each of us alone can interpret our Bibles, or in small communities, or in denominations, or in church groups, we can read our Bibles and come to an understanding of what the Bible actually says about something. A definitive interpretation. But here's the thing. We can't. We can't. Even a Bible-only church, even a church which in its name, in the marquee, in the sign out front, says Bible Church, has to interpret that Bible. Everything in the Bible requires interpretation. And as human beings, we are not perfect in our knowledge. We will come to different interpretations of the Bible. If this is the system that God intended for us to use— if the Bible was the sole rule of faith that we were, as Christians, meant to cling to, meant to test all of our decisions by, 
Well, then why do we read these texts and come to different interpretations? I can pray my heart out and approach a piece of scripture and get a radically different interpretation than somebody else down the street or in the next room from me or the next seat over has come to. And they've prayed just as hard. They're approaching this text with humility, the same as I am, but reach a different conclusion. The system to me seemed broken. Besides the fact that for the first 1,500 years of church history, this wasn't how it was done. Christians couldn't read in large measure, in overwhelming majority. Couldn't read the text for themselves and interpret it in some kind of plain sense. Instead, the church read those texts to them and interpreted it for them in what's called the tradition. The tradition of the church, which works alongside of scripture to help Catholics, help Christians for the first 1,500 years of church history to interpret the Bible. The church traces the authority to do that back to the words that Jesus said to Peter and the apostles. The ability to bind and to loose. The authority to teach, to baptize. The Catholic Church holds this authority in a very important role. In a very important way. So here was, for me, as a non-denominational evangelical Christian, a system which made a lot more sense. Because if we're honest, if God is who he says he is, a good, loving, merciful God who wants to save all of us, why would the system that he established for us to know how to live be so darn confusing? (laughs) And it is. If we're honest, there are hundreds of ways to interpret single passages of the Bible. We're informed by theologians we read, by our social context, by our understanding of church history, of doctrine, of how we feel emotionally, of where we are spiritually with our walk with Jesus, of how mature we are as Christians, of the people we talk to and socialize with, and where we live geographically, in space and time where we are. All of these things factor into our interpretations of the Bible of certain passages, of larger, of larger scripture, of the Bible as a whole, of our understanding of salvation history. We interpret the Bible differently based on all of these factors. And we come to radically different conclusions. And not conclusions about small things, like what kind of music to use in a worship service, or if women should veil their heads or not, or speak in public or not, or how to do communion. No, we differ. Christianity, non-Catholic Christianity, differs on enormous things. Things like how we are saved. This is the core of Christianity, and we differ on this. What baptism means, what marriage means, what gender means, what is happening in communion. These enormous questions Who is God? Who is Jesus? How do we understand God? How do we understand the divinity and humanity of Christ? How do we read the Bible? These things are different in different non-Catholic Christian denominations. And as a non-Catholic, 
Catholic Christian, as an evangelical, non-denominational Christian, it led me to wonder, is this system broken? If the Bible is the only thing, if the Bible is the only thing that we have, and if, in fact, our Bible isn't even the same canon of the Bible that was quoted by Jesus and the apostles and the early church, written and, and read by these ancient Jews in their tradition, if the Bible, this perhaps incomplete Bible, is the only rule of faith I am to cling to, well, that makes no sense. Because God is good. God is better than that. And God does not want to divide his church into thousands of different denominations based on different interpretations. In the Gospel of John, chapter 17, Jesus prays for unity. A closeness between the members of his church that is the same closeness as Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit experience in the Trinity. And you cannot get any more unified than that. So, no. I don't think that Bible-only system of doing Christianity was what Jesus intended. It wasn't what the apostles intended, or the early church, or those bishops, those church fathers that affirmed the biblical canon, or the church that taught for 1,500 years from the Bible through tradition. The system is broken, I would argue, because this wasn't the system that Christ ever intended to establish. Christ didn't leave us with a Bible. He left us with what St. Paul calls the pillar and bulwark of truth, which is the church. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Cordial Catholic Podcast. Please do send me feedback. Let me know what you think of this format for the episode. It was different than the other episodes I've done, so if this is your first encounter with this podcast, check out the other episodes in the back catalog. Those are interview episodes with other guests with experts on the Catholic faith. This episode was a bit different. It's a bit of an experiment to see how you, the listener, enjoy this format. Maybe I'll do more of these more often. Send emails to cordialcatholic at gmail.com. Let me know. I'm on Twitter at cordialcatholic, on Facebook at the Cordial Catholic, and the website is thecordialcatholic.com. Please subscribe to or follow this show wherever you find it. Leave me a rating and review if you can. And if you want to support this show, even $1 or $2 a month gets you access to a behind-the-scenes show, bonus, exclusive content, early access. Go to patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. Any contribution helps me to continue this work of evangelization, which underpins this whole thing. If you can give $5 or more a month, I can send you a free book. I'll draw for free books every month in a contest, and winners receive a hand-picked book from me to you. Your prayers, your fasting is also appreciated too. I'm praying and fasting for you, and thank you so much for listening to this show. Take care, guys. See you next week, and God bless.
This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcathy. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.